Oh, my God. 
Five minutes after 6 a.m. Good morning, everybody. My name is Nahum Siegel. Welcome to a uh, Friday Erev Shabbos at JMNAM. It's Erev Shabbos Chazon on this Friday, August the 9th, the 8th of Menachem Av. Um, tomorrow is, uh, is Tisha B'Av, but uh, we observe it on Sunday because of the, um, the fact that Tisha B'Av falls on Shabbos. It's Erev Shabbos Parshas Dvarim, Erev Shabbos Chazon, candle lighting in New York, 742. And again, Sunday is the observance of Tisha B'Av, and a week from today, Friday, is Tuba'av, Erev Shabbos Nachamu. We have a very, very big week ahead, but before, of course, we get to that, we have to complete uh, this week, Erev Shabbos Chazon, and, um, and have the observance of uh, Tisha B'Av this coming Sunday. Uh, we always have a mix on Erev Shabbos Chazon of uh, a cappella selections for Shabbos and the uh, conclusions of Rabbi Beryl Wine's lectures that he's already started for us. So we will start with the lecture on Chovos Halvavos, which Rabbi Wine has been uh, uh, doing for us here at JM in the AM, and we'll take it to its completion. And then we will get into uh, more uh, programming in the next two hours of JM and the AM, including a couple of interesting interviews, plus the weekly update with Malcolm Holmline, Rabbi Yudin, on the Torah portion of the week, and much, much more. Rabbi Beryl Wine, Chovos Halvavos at JM in the AM. Good evening, everyone. Tonight uh, is the uh, final lecture in this series on the four great uh, classical books of Musar of Ethics. And so uh, we have discussed uh, earlier the Shari Tshuva of Rabbeinu Yonah, and uh, we have discussed the Mesilas Yeshorim of Moshe Chaim Lutzato and the Orchus Sadikim, which uh, the author is anonymous. And tonight we are discussing the Chovot Alevovot by Rabbeinu Bachia ben Yosef Ibn Pakuda. Now this book differs than the other three in the fact that it was not written as a book of ethics. It was not written as a book of Musar, right? The Shari Tshuva is the gates of repentance, so it was written, uh, so to speak, to make you feel bad. Uh, points out uh, the need for repentance and how to do it. And the Mesils Yushorim is also written in that style as to how to ascend to great spirituality and to uh, service of God. And the Orchot Sadikim is also written in that vein. This book is a different type of book completely. And uh, I want to discuss with you the background to it, because contrary to all belief, what we would like to believe, that we are not influenced by the outside world, and that our uh, 
traditional way of life is pristine and that if uh, Moshe Rabbeinu descended today uh, he would recognize us and we would recognize him that's true in the core mitzvot and Torah etc but there are a lot of things that he would not recognize it doesn't mean they're wrong it just means that it's 3,500 years later and a lot of things have happened so uh, in order to understand this book we have to understand a little about the Islamic society uh, that governed Spain and the Middle East in the 11th century this book was written in about 1040 and uh, Bachia lived in Saragossa in Spain so he's a Spanish Jew, uh, but he was a noted philosopher. He was not a rabbi. He had no public position. Uh, he was not a judge. He was not a dayan or a teacher even. And uh, he uh, was extremely well-versed in uh, Greek and Islamic philosophy. Now, I've pointed out to you before that philosophy is not such a big deal by us any longer. It's not at the top of the list of uh, courses that we study or uh, fields uh, that we specialize in. But in the Middle Ages, uh, philosophy reigned supreme. And the philosophical debates and philosophical debates and questions were the core of any belief, any faith. And therefore we find in the Catholic Church, in the Christian world, uh, that eventually Thomas Aquinas uh, reigned supreme because he was able to reconcile Aristotle's philosophy to Catholicism. In the Muslim world, there was a man, Ibn Rashid, and Lahavdul in our world, uh, the Rambam and others, the Ralbag, uh, Rabbi Yosef Halbo. There's an entire literature which uh, today is uh, not, it's not very popular. And to a great extent, it doesn't speak to us. Because we're not bothered by uh, the differences between Plato and Aristotle. Uh, that doesn't disturb us. And uh, science has taken over the role of describing the universe to us, a role that originally was filled by philosophers. So what do we need it for? And the fact that philosophy uh, never comes to a conclusion after you've done studying all the philosophers, you still don't know uh, much more than when you started. So uh, it's not appealing to us because we live, uh, you know, we want to see the practical illustration of our knowledge. We want to see, we live in a world of technology, of commerce, of all of these wondrous things. But that's not the world of the Middle Ages. And it's not the world of the great scholars of Judaism that lived, uh, let us say, from the year 1000, till the year 1500 or 1600. They operated in a different world. 
and that world influenced them. It influenced them in what they wrote and in the necessity of having to write these types of books. Uh, we find in the Torah that the uh, Torah warns us that the Jewish people will look around and say, How is it that, that these other nations which are civilized, uh, which are so numerous, which are, so to speak, the rulers of civilization, how is it that they worship their gods in this fashion? So let me also. So let me also doesn't only mean that Jews will be pagans, but let me adopt their intensity, uh, their devotion, their way of serving their gods and apply it to my God. And that has been a constant throughout Jewish history. I'll give you an example. Uh, the Jewish people never saw burqa ladies until the Muslims introduced us to them. So uh, the uh, Eastern European Jewish women, who certainly were modest and pious, uh, didn't wear burqas because nobody wore burqas. But in a society as ours, where a section of the Muslim world imposes burqas on women, so then there are Jews that say, how can it be that the Muslim world is more modest in dress than we are? How can it be that they worship their gods with such an intensity and we don't. So therefore it overlaps to us as well. And this has been a truism throughout Jewish history. There are, uh, you know, uh, less onerous examples uh, to the entire discussion that exists amongst uh, the scholars in the 12th and 13th centuries in uh, France and Germany about uh, whether it's permissible to have stained glass windows in the, in the synagogue. And it's a whole discussion. And naturally, there are at least two opinions. But the Jewish people liked stained glass windows. Why did they like stained glass windows? Because the Goyim liked stained glass windows. There were no stained glass windows in the temple. But uh, when the cathedral in Prague wanted to have stained glass windows, so then the Jews in Prague also wanted to have stained glass windows in the synagogue. Because how could it be that we should be as nice or as beautiful as they are? And that continues, that's a, that's a stream, a trend that continues throughout Jewish history. So in the 11th century, the Muslim world is fractured, as you can see, right? And not only the great split between Sunni and Shiite, uh, but uh, within the Sunnis themselves. Now, in our time, all of these splits uh, have turned violent. 
that's ISIS, that's the Syrian civil war, that's Iraq, that's Afghanistan, it's the Taliban. We are, so to speak, uh, the Jews are, uh, you know, we like to think that we're the center of everything. And most of the time we believe it. But the truth is that we're a sideshow here. It has nothing to do with us. This has been going on for 1,500 years. It waxes and wanes. It has ups and downs. It becomes more violent. It becomes less violent. After Muhammad died, there was an immediate split in the Muslim world. Who's going to be the Rebbe? And that's where the Sunni and Shiite split occurred. Within the Sunnis, uh, there were a group of people who developed a uh, mystical, very spiritual, uh, ascetic uh, view of uh, the, uh, what, what Islam was supposed to be. Uh, Islam, on one hand, was uh, warlike, it was sensuous, uh, it promised all sorts of physical pleasures. But on the other hand, there was a, a philosophy that existed uh, that uh, uh, preached a different type of Islam. And uh, this Sufi type of Islam uh, had a great effect upon the Jews, too. Because how could it be that the Muslim world was going to be more spiritual or more philosophical than the Jews. In other words, uh, this, uh, this group, uh, uh, which uh, uh, was originally uh, followers of Plato and then uh, were converted to Aristotle, uh, so they saw the world in philosophical terms and in mystical, spiritual terms. The world is not the world the way you see it. There are unseen forces, uh, their devotion to prayer, their devotion to asceticism, to uh, denial of pleasures of the body. And this was a, the Sufi, they, this was a very powerful group. It had a great influence. And it had an influence on the Jewish world as well. And therefore, this book, the Chovet Alvovot of Rabbeinu Bechaya, so we don't know how to pronounce the Ashkenazim pronounce it Bechaya, it's probably Bachya. It's probably the same, uh, it's a corruption of the name Chaim, Bechayai, to have life. Uh, he, uh, wrote this Magnus Opum, this great book. It's a big book, very difficult book. And uh, he wrote it in Judeo-Spanish. Now, just as the Ashkenazim developed Yiddish, the Spanish Jews developed a language Judeo-Spanish, which was a corruption of Spanish with uh, Hebrew and uh, Jewish influence and Jewish nuance. There was a third language, Judeo-Arabic. 
the Jews who lived in the Arabic-speaking countries, so they spoke Arabic, but the, uh, there was a lot of Jewishness in it. So, uh, and what was common to all of these languages, was common to Yiddish, to Judeo-Spanish, to Ladino, to uh, Judeo-Arabic, is that it was always written in Hebrew characters, always written in Hebrew letters, even though the language is not Hebrew. And that's, for instance, how the Rambam wrote two of his, of his three major works were written in uh, Judeo-Arabic and written in uh, Hebrew letters, the Mornevuchim and the Pirisha Mishnah. Only the uh, Yoda Chavzoka was written in Hebrew. Now, there was a family of translators. Translating was a big business because the Ashkenazic Jews could not read or understand Judeo-Spanish or Judeo-Arabic. And uh, books such as uh, the works of Maimonides uh, were sought after. The Ashkenazic world wanted to know what the Rambam had to say. So there was a family in Provence called the Ibn Tibon family, especially a father and a son, Ibn Tibon, Shmuel and Yehuda, Ibn Tibon. And they, they were marvelous translators. They translated everything. And they were the main translators for the Rambam, though there were other translators as well. Our friend uh, Yehuda al-Kharizi, who's our next-door neighbor here in the next little street, one of the most beautiful little streets in Jerusalem. Uh, he was a translator of the Rambam, the Pirisha Mishnayas of Seder Zoraim. He translated it into Hebrew. There's an entire cadre of people who are translators. We have that today, right? The great works that are translated into English. The Talmud is translated into English. All of our prayer books are translated into English. Uh, Europe uh, was translated into German, was translated into Yiddish, was translated into Russian, was translated into French, was translated into Italian. So uh, the Chovas Halavovos, as we have it today, is a Hebrew translation by Ibn Tibon of the original uh, work that was written in Judeo-Spanish in 1040 by Rabbeinu Bachya. Now, translations, no matter how exact, always suffer from the lack of nuance. And many times to really understand something, you have to have nuance. You have to feel what the author wanted to tell you. Uh, probably that's the difference between the spoken word and the written word and why many times the spoken word is much more effective whereas the written word uh, has a more difficult time conveying the unsaid part of what the author wanted you to understand so with that uh, background uh, we'll talk now about the Chovat Alvot 
Now, Chovod al is divided into ten sections. The original Arabic, uh, Judeo-Arabic name was Instructions and Guidance for the Duties of the Heart. But uh, when the, even Tibon translated it, he already took out the instructions and guidance, and he just left the words duties of the heart. Chovot halavovot, the obligations of the heart. Now, you immediately, from the title, know that this is going to be a spiritual book. This is not the Rambam. The Rambam is not interested in your heart as much as he's interested in your mind, in your brain. The Rambam says that the main obligation of a Jew is to know God. And by know God, he means intellectually to come to the level of a connection with God. The Chovetz Alavovos, uh, he uh, doesn't say that at all. First of all, uh, he lived at the time of Rashi. Whether he was aware of Rashi is, uh, is questionable. Rashi was born in 1038. The book was written in 1040. So he's certainly not influenced by Rashi. Uh, but uh, this is written a century before the Rambam. So the Rambam, in essence, disagrees with him. And he says that uh, Judaism, he says, is not so much a matter of intellect to know God as it is a matter of the heart to own and to love him. Now, if you'll just think about it, you know, without prejudice, uh, that's Hasidus. That was the dis- disagreement between the Hasidim and the Misnagdim. The Misnagdim said, you have to know Torah. Study is the main thing. Talmud Torah, Kenegat Kula. And the Baal Shem and Rabbi Yisif of Polnoya and the later Hasidic Rabbeim said, prayer is just as important Spirit is just as important. Emotion is just as important. God wants our heart, which the Gemara also says. Rachmona Liba boy doesn't want our brain. He wants our heart. So there is this uh, dichotomy in how to view what Judaism should be. So <laughs> I was... Uh, I was once in a synagogue for Simchas Torah. It was a very, very non-Hasidic synagogue, to put it mildly. So they marched around the Bima seven times. It took about nine minutes. And uh, that was Simchas Torah. A member of that congregation later uh, experienced the Simchas Torah in my synagogue in Muncie which was uh, usually pretty much under control, but Simchas Torah was completely out of control. And in the middle of the third hakafa, he came over to me and he said, Rabbi Wein, what is all the noise about? So it's, it's a, what kind of service are we going to have? Are we going to have an emotional service or an intellectual service? How do we serve God? And that's a debate. And I don't know if one size fits all. But that's a debate that remains today. It reflects itself in many, many different forms in our world. So 
So the Chovos Halavovos, he's looking for the heart. When you look for the heart, then you become mystical. You must. If you're dealing with emotion, then it's something that's beyond logic, beyond rationality, beyond the letter of the law. You're looking for something that's ephemeral, that grabs you. And that's the idea of the Chovas Alvovos. But the Chovas Alvovos is a book of philosophy. It's not a book of Musa. Now, the Vali Musa, the Musa movement took portions of the book. They never studied the whole book. The philosophical part of the book, the first uh, two, three uh, gates or sections of the book never were studied in the yeshivas. Because they do, they deal with philosophy, they deal with God. Proofs for God, His existence. He has the famous proof uh, that uh, other philosophers have rejected, but uh, he offered it as a, as a proof that it could not be that a universe as complex as ours, and he already realized it a thousand years ago how complex it is. What shall we say now that we have uh, an inkling of how complex it is? How can you say that that came about at random? His example is that if you took uh, ink and spilled it on paper, you wouldn't get a book. It would not at random form an intelligent writing. Uh, we would, uh, the example that later was given in our time was that if you had a million monkeys and everyone had a typewriter and they sat for a hundred years typing, you still wouldn't get Shakespeare. So that's uh, a philosophic idea. Uh, that idea today uh, doesn't, uh, doesn't really register in the philosophic world. Uh, the whole idea of it random is a different idea completely. But nevertheless, he raises this. And he raises the fact that the belief in God is dependent upon belief in our own soul. In other words, if we know ourselves, that is the gateway to know God. Because he said our soul is a piece of God, so to speak. It is the immortal quality that lies within us. It's our conscience. It's what constantly troubles us. It's why we're never happy. Because the truth of the matter is that in life, uh, there are not that many times that a person is truly happy. In fact, we don't even know how to define what's happy. So he said that because of all of that, uh, the only way that we can achieve this uh, emotional connection to the Creator is by knowing our soul. And he said knowing our soul is to know our assets and liabilities, our positive points and our negative points, and to know our motivations, and to somehow try and deal with them. So he says the main purpose in life is dealing with ourselves. We think the main purpose is to deal with others, or to deal with society as a whole. 
And he says here, the main purpose of life is to deal with yourself. However, he says, people who only deal with themselves are narcissistic. So again, the idea of balance rears its head in Judaism is that part of dealing with ourselves is dependent upon how we deal with others. And that is a uh, philosophic view. And that really was the view of the Balei Musser. That's what they took from this book. Uh, Rabbi Saul Salanter said in one of his famous comments and quips that the other man's olam hazeh is my olam habo. In other words, the other man's physical welfare in this world is the spiritual key for me in immortal life. And uh, this viewpoint uh, therefore uh, blended uh, this idea into one philosophy. Uh, This is far different than uh, the Rambam's ideas. The Rambam speaks about our soul, but he doesn't... uh, the Rambam generally stays away from uh, spiritual things. The Rambam is meat and potatoes. And Jewish people like dessert. And therefore, we are always searching. And that was the whole idea of Kabbalah. Uh, the Kabbalah is, again, to deal with what we cannot somehow define that doesn't uh, lend itself to any rationality and Kabbalah placed a great stress on uh, the unity of the soul the unity of different souls and the whole idea of reincarnation all of these things all because of the fact that we're looking for this emotional attachment to God And the emotional attachment to God is found through self-analysis. Now, once we come to self-analysis, that's where the Musser kicks in. And this is the parts of the book that were most studied and most commented upon and had the greatest influence and made it one of the basic books of the Musser movement. So uh, one of the ideas, uh, he uh, spends a great deal of time talking about hypocrisy. Now, again, if we want to know ourselves, then we cannot be hypocritical. We have to be honest with ourselves. But his opinion is that almost all people are hypocritical. And that even when we do great and good things, we do it... uh, not out of true motivation, but we do it for hypocritical reasons. And he has a whole discussion of what we call lishma. So there's an idea of Torah lishma, to study Torah for the sake of studying Torah. So what does that mean for the sake of studying Torah? So some people study Torah because they want to become a rabbi, which is a self-inflicted punishment but people do it some people study Torah because they want the fame that goes with being a great scholar 
but there's a concept called lishma for the sake of it itself and he points out how elusive that is how uh, simply uh, treacherous the idea to do something lishma is because you think you're doing it lishma and you got a hundred other reasons that you yourself don't realize that bring you to do it so he says that uh, he doesn't have a magic bullet for it. His magic bullet is to realize the hypocrisy, to realize the power of hypocrisy, to realize how it exists. And therefore, in the Musser world, they would try to go to great lengths to avoid hypocrisy. I'll give you an example. In, uh, in the great uh, Musser uh, yeshiva, in Kelm in Lithuania my father-in-law was a student there so Kelm was famous as uh, a place where you worked on yourself so in Kelm they never gave anyone a title when they called up the Russian yeshiva for an aliyah to come to the Torah they said Yamod Chaim they didn't even say his father's name. Not only they didn't say a Ravagon, a Tzaddik. Took away all the titles. By taking away all the titles, they did not mean disrespect, but they meant that they eliminate the hypocrisy. You're not going to get the title. There are no titles. In the extreme sense, we have in the Muslim movement that they wrote uh, regarding someone who was deceased, so they said, so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, Ulai Zichrona Libracha. Maybe, maybe we should remember him for good. Well, you know, that doesn't even register in our time when, uh, you know, uh, titles abound. But uh, this uh, attempt somehow to make people recognize the hypocrisy that exists. So in Hasidus, for instance, the Kotzker Rebbe, the famous Rebbe Menachem Mendel Morgenstern, see, all, all of his ideas uh, play itself out in Jewish history. It's not, you know, it's not just a book. It plays itself out, it's reflected in different generations, by different people, by different movements. So the Kotzker Rebbe, he, uh, he, was, uh, he devoted himself to Emmas, the truth, to the extent that nobody could deal with him. Because you don't want to, you find it very hard to exist with a person that's truthful completely 100% because if he tells you the truth about yourself then you resent it and therefore he was a very controversial Rebbe and he said a great idea he said hypocrisy leads to skepticism because of the fact that we recognize and we always do hypocrisy in others it leads to skepticism so to speak about Judaism and God and the faith itself you see that every day in the newspapers you know uh, holy people are uh, exposed as being not so holy 
So who suffers? Not just the person himself. The whole faith suffers. The whole establishment suffers. I was telling you this story that uh, when I first moved into Muncie, so uh, which was in, in the ni- in 1972, so then uh, the Bell Telephone Company, uh, Blessed Marie, was still alive, <laughs> and the Bell Telephone Company in Muncie gave a 25% discount to all clergymen. So everybody in the Rockland County phone book was listed as rabbi. (laughs) So my hypocrisy was that I refused to list myself as rabbi. I just was playing barrel wine, and then people said, oh, you must be the rabbi. (laughs) Because the electrician and the butcher and the grocery man and the refrigerator repairman were all listed as rabbi. (laughs) So hypocrisy leads to skepticism. It leads to a weakening of faith. And therefore, uh, he... uh, spends an entire section of the book on the problem of hypocrisy. He speaks about the the Talmud tells us that uh, the scholars, the Talmud Chachomim, wore a certain garment that was like their uh, mark of uh, their uniform. And the garments... And uniforms have always been important in Jewish life. They remain so until today. We identify people by what kind of head covering they wear, what kind of jacket, what kind of Sabbath clothing. That's our means of identification of people. So he points out that if a person wants to wear, it's quoting the Talmud again, The Talmud says not everyone should wrap themselves in the garment of the scholar, even if one is a scholar. So he points that out, that that's the gate to hypocrisy is clothing, how one appears. And if you want to appear in a certain fashion, then you have to make sure that you live up to the demands or the minimum standards that people think go with that uh, clothing, behavior, uh, title, whatever it is. And therefore, uh, the Bali Musa in Europe uh, were very, very careful about these things. Very careful about it. He has a whole long section on humility, which uh, the Rambam also emphasizes humility. Raman says that the only extreme uh, trait that a person should aspire to is humility. Ma'od, ma'od, have a ruach. He has examples in the Chovos that are uh, that are just frightening about uh, things that happen to people, but in their great humility, they did not uh, complain or. Uh, fight back and he says humility springs from the low origin of man uh, what uh, you know uh, 
our natural behavior. So we're like an animal. The vicissitudes of life, the, the blows that people suffer in life, or no one goes through life unscathed. And one's own failings and shortcomings compared with the duties of man and the greatness of God. So if we measure ourselves in that fashion, if we measure ourselves as to what we're supposed to be, so then we become humble. In the famous statement of the Rebbe Rebzusha, who uh, said uh, that in the world to come, he said if they ask him, how come you weren't uh, the Rambam, he would say, I didn't have his mind. Now, how come you weren't this person? I didn't have his wealth. I didn't have his talent. But he said, they're going to ask me, why weren't you Zusha? That's what I'm afraid of. So it's uh, the uh, comparison of potential to realization, which brings humility to a person. Also, uh, the fact that uh, we recognize our failings. So if we recognize our failings, we should... uh, we should be less arrogant because arrogance is a very, very destructive trait. And we say that on Yom Kippur, I am like a, a vessel that's full of remorse and shame. And we say, What shall we say to you? So there's a difference between saying it and feeling it. But he puts the emphasis on feeling it. And he says that uh, in the, this philosophy that... So, so this, by the way, was a uh, part of this Sufi religion. A part of their faith was uh, enormous humility. And they would have exercises in humility to physically abuse uh, themselves and others in order to achieve a state of humility. Now, he, uh, he has a whole chapter on asceticism. Now, uh, in the Middle Ages, both in Christianity and in Islam, there was a strong streak of self-abasement of asceticism you know in our world it's just the opposite our world is uh, you know who can collect the most who can enjoy the most but in that world is who can deny the most who can deny oneself the most and in this uh, Sufi uh, atmosphere uh, so uh, there were people that uh, went and lived uh, in caves. Uh, they isolated themselves from the world. You know, they lived on uh, literally on bread and water. Uh, in the Christian world, uh, there was uh, the monks that wore hair shirts that always itched. Or they flogged themselves. You have today amongst the Shiites... Uh, once a year they have a flogging they beat themselves with chains 
So this, uh, in, in that world, so you have to remember, this is a world where 90% of the people are illiterate and 99% of the people are poverty-stricken. And the average life expectancy is 35. So in such a world, asceticism, so to speak, makes sense. It fits the society. But... Uh, in a word, I mean, uh, it's hard to talk about asceticism if you're driving a Lexus and, uh, you know, and you're living in a 16-room home. So uh, what are you going to talk about? Now, I'm not, I'm not anti-Lexus. <laughs> but we have to realize that we are in a far different society. And therefore, that's why I have always felt that the Muslim movement was successful in Lithuania because the Jews in Lithuania were dirt poor. And you're poor, you don't have expectations, you're never going to have money. So then you can think about other things. But if everyone is convinced that he's going to make a trillion, he's going to manage a hedge fund, he's going to always have whatever he wants to have, it's entitlement. So it's very hard to talk about Musser because the uh, other things crowd out our uh, self-analysis. Uh, now, in Jewish thought, in the Talmud, and in later Jewish thought, there is a streak of asceticism. The Ramban says on the Posig and Gdoshim to you. So Kadeshis Atzmacho Bemashemutrlacho. There are things that are permitted that the Torah allows you, but you sanctify yourself by holding yourself back, by not pursuing every pleasure that is permissible. And uh this uh in his generation, they certainly understood what he was talking about. It was especially prevalent, not so much, in, interestingly enough, not so much in Spain and in Sephardic Jewry as it was in Ashkenazic Jewry. In the 12th and 13th centuries, the Hasidic Ashkenaz, the famous pious men of Ashkenaz, were all ascetics because that was the the society that they lived in, the non-Jewish society, and they themselves pursued it as well. Uh, I come from a generation that uh, uh, we were not ascetics, but uh, since we didn't have any money, and we didn't expect to have any money, so we had a different view than, let's say, my uh, grandchildren have. When I grew up in Chicago, uh, I knew maybe five families that owned their own home. Everybody else rented apartments. And today, um, people expect to own their own home. That's a very small example. But he uh, emphasizes it. He emphasizes the idea of asceticism. And he says that that is part of the uh, ladder, so to speak, to ascend to a more spiritual sense and to have a connection with God is to be able to deny oneself. 
I remember when I was in the yeshiva. So uh, one of my rabbeim was a great balmuser. So he used to talk to us about not using ketchup. And I never quite understood, you know, where in the Torah it said not to use ketchup. <laughs> not only that, we never understood because the food in the yeshiva, if you did not have ketchup, it was inedible. <laughs> we lived, we had ketchup for breakfast. <laughs> but as I grew older and uh, I studied more, uh, I began to understand what he was driving at that uh, somehow you have to be able to survive without ketchup too and that by so doing uh, one uh, gains a uh, self-discipline and then he says all the mitzvahs of the Torah are educational right? not educational in the sense that we'll understand every mitzvah but they're educational because it's a regimen that we follow to discipline and it brings to a certain amount of self-denial I can't eat everything, I can't do everything, I can't. So to a certain extent, we all become ascetics by following the Torah. Whereas if there are no rules and no inhibitions, uh, then it all departs. The final portion of the book deals with love of God, Avas Hashem. Now, the Avas Hashem again is based on emotion because love is emotion love is indefinable as a rational feeling I have a feeling towards someone so I want to do something for that person I'm concerned with that person's welfare I have an emotional attachment I cannot think of myself as being without that person so the love of God is to be seen on that plane of emotion, of having that connection. And since it says, So evidently God thinks that we're capable of achieving that emotion. Otherwise he would not command us, that you should love the Lord your God. So he says, where the Ramban will say it later, uh, that... Uh, a person can do all the mitzvahs and never never get there never come to this level because of the fact that there is no emotional attachment and the duty of the heart is to create this emotional attachment which we call love so he quotes here he says a man may be as holy as an angel yet he will not gain equal merit to the one that leads his fellow man to righteousness and to the love of God. So he says the love of God is achieved through our actions in society and through helping others. And by so doing, we come because if we can do so without hypocrisy, and if we can do so for the sake of the fellowship of man, and to try and improve life for all. So then we come to an understanding of the Creator. And once we have this understanding of the Creator, we are able to come to the level of love of God, which is the supreme level of attachment which the Torah asks for us.
So this uh, is a very short synopsis of this great work, this great philosophic work, which the Bali Musa adopted and uh, made it uh, part of the curriculum, so to speak, of Musa. So we've discussed these four basic books, and I think that uh, in understanding these books and understanding their authors, we have a picture of the greatness and holiness of Judaism. I want to thank you all for coming. J.M. in the A.M. on a Friday morning broadcast. My thanks to Ibero Wine. We're going to uh, we're going to uh, intersperse over the next two hours with our conversations, our weekly update, etc. Intersperse some uh, nine days Erev Shabbos Chazon appropriate selections. Um. <clears throat> As we get set, as we get set for uh, the observance of Tisha B'av, beginning after Shabbos, uh, that was Ray Wine's lecture on Chovos Halavavos. Information about all of Rabbi Wine's lectures one eight hundred. 499-W-E-I-N or RabbiWine.com RabbiWEIN.com and I cannot I cannot um, recommend highly enough to go to the website and see the incredible catalog of available lectures on so many topics that Rabbi Wine uh, addresses and has addressed over the last many decades. Check it out. You'll be extremely impressed. RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com, everything available on MP3s. We're way beyond the uh, CDs and cassettes at this time. Everything available in MP3 format. And um, I would hope that you would uh, go and enjoy the experience of seeing and, uh, and, and hearing so many of his great lectures. It's Friday, August 9th, the 8th of Menachem Av. Today is uh, Erev Shabbos Parshas Devarim, Erev Shabbos Chazon. Candle lighting at 742 here in New York. 742, make sure you know when things start where you are. Sunday is the 10th of Av. We observe Tisha B'Av on Sunday, beginning tomorrow night, right after Shabbos. In this area, there's no eating after 8 o'clock. And the fast will go until about... 8.45, maybe a drop earlier on Sunday. That's New York time. Next Friday is Tuba Av. Next Shabbos is Shabbos Nachamu. And we have a very, very big week ahead. This coming Monday here at JM in the AM, Mordechai Shapiro is scheduled to join us here in studio. Tuesday, after JM in the AM, we leave with Nefesh Benefesh for their Aliyah charter flight to Israel. On Wednesday, between 6 and 9 a.m., I cannot suggest nearly enough or uh, emphasize enough how important it is or how great it is to tune into the Wednesday morning show between 6 and 9 a.m. and hear our encounters with Olim, with people who are on the plane, literally heading to Israel and having their dream fulfilled. That'll happen Wednesday between 6 and 9 a.m., the Nefesh Benefesh program. Uh, The intention is to be back in studio Thursday morning. On time, please, God.
And as I said, next Friday, Tuba Av and uh, Erev Shabbos Chazon here at JM in the AM. Coming up today, we have a very, very important interview at about 7.20 Eastern Time this morning. Um, today is the uh, anniversary of the Sabaro bombing back in 2001. I know there are people listening who do not even know what I mean when I say Sabaro bombing. But uh, it was one of the most dastardly terrorist attacks of that era. And we have an important conversation about that bombing all these years later coming up at 7.20 Eastern Time this morning here at JM in the AM. Malcolm Holmline will join us, Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. I'll be at 7.40, and of course, Rabbi Yudin, he and his family are now up from Shiva for his sister, and he will join us at 8.15 with the Torah portion of the week. Galitzal, Israel Army Radio, 2 p.m. newscast for a Friday is next. We say Boker Tov from Jam Dam. Galitzal, Shalom Rav, Kanoam Avirami, Mashe Achshav. ראש הממשלה נתניהו אומר כי כוחות הביטחון קרובים לתפיסת חוליית המחבלים האחראים לרצח דביר סורק זיכרונו לברכה. אנו נאבקים על מקומנו בארץ כל הזמן. ארץ ישראל נקנית בייסורים ומשפחת סורק משלמת מחיר יקר מאוד. אנחנו הולכים לתפוס את המרצחים, זה לא ייקח עוד הרבה זמן, כך ראש הממשלה נתניהו. מוקדם יותר, יואב סורק, אביו של דביר, תקף את מדיניות הממשלה ביהודה ושומרון וטען לניצול פוליטי של רצח בנו. ידה הארוכה של צהל מונעת, אבל מה קורה אחר כך? משחררים מחבלים, כך אביו של דביר סורק. החות'ים בתימן מאשימים, ישראל הייתה שותפה לחיסול אחיו של מנהיג התנועה הלילה. בארגון הטרור השיעי גינו את החיסול של אברהים אל חות'י, ויפנו אצבע מאשימה אל עבר ישראל ואל ארצות הברית. בית המשפט המחוזי בתל אביב דחה לשבוע הבא את הדיון בעתירה נגד החלטת עיריית רמת גן להפעיל תחבורה ציבורית בשבת. בסוף השבוע שעבר הופעלו לראשונה קווי אוטובוס מרמת גן לתל אביב, וכ-1,500 נוסעים השתמשו בשירות. כתבתנו ליה ספילקין מוסרת כי בית המשפט ידון בעתירה בשבוע הבא. מזג האוויר ללא שינוי, וראשון, התחממות. ולסיום, מיד בגלגלצ, יואב קוטנר ואורלי יניב חוזרים לשנות ה-70 עם דירוג 40 השירים הגדולים של שנות ה-70. כפי שבחרו מאזיני גלגלצ וגולשי מאקו. לקראת שש ייחשף שיר העשור. אלה החדשות שעורכת תמר פלד.
J.M. in the A.M. Appropriate selections for this Erev Shabbos Chazon. Tonight is actually the 9th of Av. We observe Tisha B'Av on Sunday because of Shabbos. But that should be a, uh, a poignant uh, piece of information that literally we are on the cusp of... Uh, of Tishabov as we speak to you on this Friday morning. It's Erev Shabbos Chazon, Erev Shabbos Parshas Dvarim, candle lighting in New York, 742. Uh, as we said, big week ahead next week. Once the fast will be behind us, please God. Uh, Monday morning here at JM and the AM, Mordechai Shapiro is going to join us in studio. On Tuesday, after the uh, JM and the AM broadcast, we get on the Nefesh Benefesh charter flight and actually do a show. Uh, while interviewing many, many Olim with great stories and the listening to their dreams come true, literally, on the flight, on the plane. You'll hear that broadcast between 6 and 9 a.m. Eastern Time on Wednesday morning, Wednesday's JM in the AM. I cannot recommend it highly enough. It is always an annual, incredible, and wonderfully inspiring show, and I hope you'll have an opportunity to tune in. Uh, today, August the 9th, is the um, is the anniversary of the bombing of the Sabaro Pizzeria in Jerusalem? As I said, many young people would not even uh, would not even know what I'm referring to when I talk about the Sabaro bombing. But for those of us who were around at that time and knowing where Sabaro was located, Mamash in the center of the uh, active area of uh, Jerusalem shopping district. Um. And the circumstances surrounding the uh, the bombing, it is very, very hard for any of us who were uh, paying attention at that time to forget. And there is an effort now uh, to um, extradite or to, um, well, you know what, I'm, I'll have our guests uh, do this certainly better than I can. With us live via telephone, Arnold Roth, whose daughter Malky was a victim in the Sabaro bombing back in 2001. Mr. Roth, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you very much, Nathan. And um, Rabbi Alchanan Pupko is with us, um, who has uh, many titles and responsibilities in the Jewish world here in Manhattan, including uh, a rabbi at the moment at the Congregation Ramat Ora 
on the Upper West Side. Rabbi Pupko, welcome to JM in the AM. Good morning. It's good to be with you, Nahum. I appreciate that very much. Um, Arnold Roth, uh, take us back to August 9th, 2001. Uh, let us know what we know about the mastermind behind the bombing, and then we'll get to uh, what the effort is like today. Mastermind is a woman, a Jordanian, who was 21 years old at the time. Uh, her name is Ahlam Tamimi, and uh, she boasts regularly and for the record of having brought a bomb, a human bomb, a man with a guitar case filled with explosives, to the center of Jerusalem from Ramallah, uh, fleeing before the explosion after carefully telling him not to explode for 10 minutes, and uh, producing a horrific, horrific result. There were 15 people killed uh, immediately. One of them was my daughter, though we didn't know it for many hours. The 16th woman, also an American citizen like my Malki, has been in a vegetative coma ever since. And another young woman who was pregnant, her name is Shoshana Heyman Green, uh, Greenbaum, who is uh, the second person who's actually dead and had American citizenship. Everyone else was uh, not American, but just as uh, just as tragically victims of what happened. If I'm not mistaken, uh, one of the reasons, and not to obviously not to minimize anyone's uh, tragic uh, 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 you know, death on that day, uh, but I believe there were multiple people from one family. Am I right about that? Five members: a father and a mother, and three children from the Chuda family, a well-known family in the Netherlands, who uh, were all in. Uh, it's a tragic story that continued long after the immediate tragedy. I can only imagine. Um, all right, so Rabbi Pupko, what is the uh, w- what is happening now on this anniversary? It's August the ninth, two thousand one. Today is August the ninth, two thousand nineteen. It's eighteen years later. What what is going on here uh, among Jewish uh, representatives of our community uh, toward uh, members of the United States Congress regarding this case? Uh, Yeah, thank you. So there's actually a very important effort uh, right here in New York. Uh, The Department of Justice and the FBI uh, put Tamimi, who is a terrorist that helped with this bombing, on America's most wanted list. Uh, They even put a $5 million reward on her head. Uh, At the same time, due to pressure from the State Department or uh, whatever it is, they are not enforcing any of that policy. It's a meaningless policy. It's only on paper. And so we're asking our congressman, the congressman from uh, Manhattan, Jerry Nadler, who is the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, to enforce this policy and to say, listen, we have an extradition treaty with Jordan. Tamimi is living in Jordan, and she should be extradited to the United States because of what she's done and because of her role in killing American citizens. Arnie, she actually spent time in jail, right? So she spent time in Israeli jail and was released in the Shalit deal. Uh, but that, you know, that is for what she's done to Israeli citizens, and that's between them and the Israelis. At the same time, as Americans, American law requires her extradition uh, and her to be brought to justice here in the United States. Speaking both of Rehanam Pupko and Arnie Roth. All right, so the, the question now is, what's the call to action? It's 18 years later. We heard um, what you're expecting or hoping that the, uh, uh, the congressman, the uh, chair of the uh, House Judiciary Committee, will do. What is it that we should do? Is this, is this 
uh, directive only for Manhattan residents, only for New Yorkers, or can all Americans participate in what you're asking us to do? Explain what's going on. Absolutely. So first of all, um, Jerry Nadler's district is not just uh, Manhattan. It's also Borough Park. And so if you, if you live in the district, or even if you don't call his New York office, um, if, can I mention the, the number here, Nachum? Please. Yeah, so you call Jerry Nadler's office. It's 212-367-7350, 212-367-7350, and ask for justice. Ask for the uh, House Judiciary Committee to enforce U.S. law and to say, we're not going to put up with this. We want justice for the families. And justice, uh, and justice in this case means to extradite her to the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, Nachum, it's hard to even imagine this, but Tamimi, who is a, a, a person who killed children in a pizzeria, essentially is living the life of a hero. She's living in Jordan. She goes on national television there all the time bragging about what she's done. Uh, I mean, it's unthinkable to, to, to see the remorseless way she speaks about her role in, in killing innocent children while they're eating pizza. It's, it's just hard to grasp with the mind. Uh, and so we want to make sure that, that that's over and that she's just sitting behind bars. Uh, the phone number at uh, Congressman Nadler's office is 212-367-7350, 212-367-7350. We're asking for the House Judiciary Committee for justice, and that means to extradite her, Alam Ahmad al-Tamimi, to the United States to uh, stand trial uh, for the murder of U.S. citizens on uh, August the 9th of 2001. Arnie, what was your family's reaction to the Shalit deal? We were vociferously opposed to Aklam Tamimi being among the 1,027 people. Uh, we recognized that the deal itself was a done deal. Uh, we focused, therefore, on that specific person. And uh, we were remorseless. We pushed very hard. And, of course, we were totally ignored, as were all the victim families, leaving, I have to say, very bitter feelings behind. However, at the end of the day, we thought that uh, there is the possibility of taking uh, action via the United States Justice Department. That's what brought me to Washington several weeks after the Shalit deal. We got a terrific response from the FBI and the DOJ, but it then took five years until they, they called us up rather unexpectedly and said, we've got some news, meet us in one of the hotels in Jerusalem. The problem with what happened at that point going forward was that nothing seemed to make sense. I have to say that the DOJ, as far as I can tell, has been terrific done what you would expect them to do, and somebody somewhere, and this is a non-partisan political assessment, is blocking them. There's a lot, as Rabbi Kupko has just said, that doesn't make sense. There's a reward for uh, information that the United States has always had and doesn't need any help getting. The woman, the murderer, the terrorist, Ahlan Tanini, lives out in the open in Jordan. She's a national hero in the truest sense of the word. So you've got lots of questions. We're we're uh, we're horrified by the way these questions are just being swept away. Was there an effort? First of all, is there a precedent? Have we ever seen the U.S. successfully extradite someone in a similar type of situation? So that's an important question, Nachum. Let me just take about thirty seconds to answer it. 
There's a terrific law on the American books that says when there is a terrorist act that takes place outside the United States and someone is killed, the United States sees the entire world as its jurisdiction. There have been many Americans who have been killed here in Israel. No one had ever taken any steps under that law. So when I walked into the room filled with operatives of the DOJ, I knew that no one had ever done this before. They said that they would. I walked away believing it. It didn't happen right away. But then when it did happen five years later, all of these questions. So there there are pretty serious questions, all kinds of questions. They're in the letter that I sent to Representative Nadler on the 20th of June of this year, and which unfortunately I haven't seen a response to. I'm hoping very much that the effort that uh, Rabbi Pupko is is heading to um, have Representative Nadler speak to local Jewish leadership and understand the depth of feeling will succeed. I think this is a good reason why it makes sense for people, if they're so inclined, to give a call to his office. They register the calls. Let them know that there are people who are really upset at the way the U.S. government seems to have gotten itself into a tangle for reasons that have nothing to do with the lives that were stolen, like my beautiful daughter Malkis and Shoshana Heyman Greenbaum, but because of uh, political considerations that don't deserve any respect. How old was Malki? Malki was 15. Um, there are there are times when these terrorist masterminds are tied to governments or larger terrorist groups. And if I'm not mistaken, sometimes when that's the case, it becomes a little easier uh, to deal with the Department of Justice because there's more of an address, so to speak, of who's responsible for the attack. Does that help at all? Does, was she directed by a large terrorist group or by some, I don't know, Iranian or other government to to be the mastermind of this attack? Emphatically, yes. She was the first woman to be recruited as a terrorist by Hamas. The United States government has never had a problem formulating the legal case against her. She's been, she was charged in 2013, but it was, un, it was sealed. It was a secret. That was uh, a surprise that we didn't know about until we learned in 2017. But there's no question about where the U.S. government stands. It says she faces charges. We want her in Washington, and there is a treaty. I repeat, there's a treaty. There's an extradition treaty between the U.S., and Jordan. The problem with everything that I just said is, and this will be surprising to many people, the Jordanians say, and they said it several days after the charges were unveiled, out of the blue, the treaty is invalid. It's always been invalid. It's never been valid, which to simple minds like mine is sheer nonsense. There have been a string of Jordanian terrorists who were extradited, who are in prison in the United States today. What is different about Tamimi? And let's start by saying all her victims were Jews in Israel. How long ago did you move to Israel? 1988. My wife is from New York, and uh, I'm from Australia. Malki was born in Australia, but she never left Yerushalayim from the time that she was two years and a few months old. So three years after you got there... No, 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 no. We arrived in 88. Oh, I thought you you said 98. I apologize. So 1988... And then, and, and she'd not leave Yushalayim all that time. And, and as a 15-year-old, she was simply spending a summer day uh, in the middle of Yushalayim. Yep, with her best friend and the two girls are buried side by side. This is not the Yark side, the Azkara. That's, right. in, that's on Khatov, which is in another three weeks from now. Right, understood. This is the anniversary on the secular calendar. Rabbi, exactly. Pup, Rabbi Pupko, Arnie just gave some important information about uh, 
the uh, the extradition treaty question mark with mm-hmm. Jordan, etc. Are these some of the things that people need to mention, or simply calling uh, Congressman Nadler's office and demanding justice and demanding extradition is enough? Need one well, be, I- need one be an expert in all this in order to call his office? Uh, absolutely not. I think anyone can call. Uh, if you ever go to these offices, whether it's the district office or in Capitol Hill, you see that the staffers log these calls and they come and they say, okay, we got X amount of calls about this issue or about that issue. So I think just seeing that people care about this, they're passionate, uh, they're hurt by the injustice, uh, that I think is very important. Uh, I think that you know their staff are aware they got our letters. Uh, we had a letter from more than 20 rabbis uh, from all over. Especially, I'd like to thank Rabbi Alan Schwartz from Oiv Tzedek, uh, who's been phenomenal, Rabbi Menachem Gitak. Uh, so there's been really a strong effort, and they're aware of it. Uh, and I think what we need now is to show that there is interest and that people are outraged by, by the injustice and discrimination here, where just because it's a terrorist that killed Jews in Israel— uh, nothing's being done about it. You're the rabbi of a pretty prominent congregation here in Manhattan. Do you think uh, Congressman Nadler will give you a, will grant you a face-to-face meeting to discuss this with him? I hope so. And I think that the big question is, uh, you know, what will be done? What you know, will we see results? Right. Uh, because you know, it's 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 a tough issue. It involves not only Congress; it involves the State Department, the Department of Justice, and then even once you get all that on board, you have to deal with Jordan, which is Never easy. Rabbi Pupko, I thank you. Rabbi Elchanan Pupko, everybody out there, contact uh, Congressman Nadler by dialing 212-367-7350. You're demanding the extradition of Alam Ahmad al-Tamimi, a woman who is the mastermind of the Sabaro killing, the Sabaro murders of uh, 18 years ago today on the 9th of August, 2001. Uh, Arnie Roth, I, uh, I, I hope that our listeners will, in fact, um, feel it in their hearts to spend a minute or two and make this call and hopefully bring a drop of comfort to you and your family all these years later. That's a cool direction to call a couple to you. Thank you. I thank you very, very much, and best regards to everybody in uh, in Israel. Uh, again, Congressman Nadler, 212-367-7350. We are demanding the extradition, as is, um, as is the, the law. Uh, following following uh, a proper legal avenues. We are demanding the extradition of Alam Ahmad Al-Tamimi, the female mastermind of the bombing of the Sabaro Pizzeria 18 years ago today, August the 9th, 2001. Hard to believe it's 18 years. Friday morning broadcast. Malcolm Holmline will join us next. Weekly update on this Erev Shabbos Chazon, Erev Shabbos Parshas Devarim. Candle lighting in New York, 742. A reminder, this coming Sunday, we are at the New Springville Jewish Center for a um, very inspiring Kinnis service beginning at 9.15 Eastern Time. Uh, make sure to be tuned in this Sunday, your Tisha B'Av day between 9.15 and 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And that will be at NahumSiegel.com on the NSN app, etc. Also starting at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on Sunday, we will have the uh, NCSY presentation of the NCSY Kolel at the Kotel Amaravi at the Western Wall, uh, which they do uh, at the end of uh, the fast every single year. That will have happened earlier in the day, and we will have that uh, to broadcast to wrap up Tisha B'Av between 7 and 9 p.m. on Sunday night.
More coming up at JM in the AM.
Friday morning, Erev Shabbos Parshas Dvarim, Erev Shabbos Chazon, candlelighting 742 in New York, Sunday of course the observance of Tisha B'Av, even though Tisha B'Av the 9th of Av starts tonight, but because of Shabbos we'll observe on uh, on Sunday. Big week next week, Monday Mordechai Shapiro live in studio, Tuesday we fly to Israel with Nefesh Benefesh, and Wednesday's show will be our three hour broadcast from the plane, literally, with Olim and their dreams and Olim and their actual, the day that they are flying and moving to Israel. It's always an inspiring and incredible show. Make sure to be tuned in. It happens this coming Wednesday morning between 6 and 9 a.m. here at JM in the A. I want to thank our friends at JewishWorldReview.com for want to print out hundreds of articles about Israel and the Jewish world and, and likely about Tisha B'Av and the Holy Temple as well. You just go to JewishWorldReview.com. And uh, you will see uh, exactly that, an incredible assortment of uh, articles that you can uh, print out and enjoy or read right there on the spot. Uh, Malcolm Honline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, joins us Friday mornings here for the weekly update at JM in the AM. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Uh, it's good to be with you as always. I appreciate that. We'll speak about the... Uh, Changes at the Conference of Presidents. We'll do that a little later on. Unfortunately, there is other news that has really dominated the uh, the Jewish globe. You know that certain, uh, ter- it's no secret, on on this 18th anniversary, August 9th, 2001, we just spoke to Arnie Roth a minute ago, uh, on this 18th anniversary of the mm-hmm. Sabaro bombing, which was, which was one of those terrorist attacks that really pierced the collective Jewish heart, uh, because of the circumstances, because of the uh, location, and of course because five family members from one family were murdered uh, uh, together in that attack. And anybody who remembers the Sabaro bombing knows what I'm referring to. Uh, this week's attack and murder of Devir Sorek, I think, was another one of those episodes that really uh, brought together uh, the collective pain of the Jewish world uh, because of the nature of it, because of where it happened, and... Uh, uh, and be, because of the uh, nature of who he was, a 19-year-old who was described with all the incredible accolades that, in fact, uh, that in fact he was. We spoke to Rabbi Brander of Artura Stone yesterday. He was describing the whole thing for us. Um, what, what do we know about this? There's speculation it was a botched abduction. There's uh, other speculation about what this attack was all about. Is this simply another uh, random terrorist attack? And, you know, we have to remember that this is what happens sometimes. He was alone. He was coming back from Banks Farm in, in Jerusalem. He um, clearly is uh, an innocent uh, in every definition uh, of the word. And the the fact that the um, it comes so close to Sabaro uh, anniversary and the Hebrew University attack anniversary, one of the things that has come out is that the, the Sabaro killers have received almost a million dollars in the pay-to-slay since the, uh, their arrest and, and incarceration after the killing uh, 
what eight children and and, and many adults and wounding even more, and in at Hebrew University where they've gotten 1.25 million dollars. Wow! Since carrying it out, and that the PA continues to provide these funds, which are incentivizing and which um, are, are are an incitement to young people, to others, to kill and to reward them for uh, for carrying it out let alone honoring the martyrs and establishing this this the, the precedent of naming buildings and places and doing everything to pay tribute to them and Abbas confronted by the loss of funds for his people doesn't care and it shows once again, sorry sure. that it is not the the needs of the Palestinian people that motivate them but their their hatred of Israel the war against Israel when during the Syrian Civil War. It's come out. Israel had okayed, and, and, and uh, that Palestinians who were caught in the middle of the fighting could come into the areas under PA control. And he refused. He said the law of return is only for Israel. It's only returning to Israel. They're not coming back here. And shows shows in the hypocrisy of the media and the distortions and misrepresentations. It's just it's it's so outrageous. And the the um, the fact that that half the people want to emigrate, as, uh, and that the dissatisfaction expressed by people on in on the West Bank, et cetera, uh, uh, shows that they get it, but they can't rise up against this dictatorship. The murder of Dvir Sorek has not yet been apprehended, but the prime minister guarantees that he will be right. And they always guarantee that they they will be. Um, and you know, by the way, the PA has increased by 12% in this budget the amount of money they pay to these terrorists, and yet they cut the salary of their security forces in half, half which is why they have no motivation, why Israeli security views that they're, that they're doing much less. And, uh, and at the same time, they extol the hate, you know, they keep talking about the hatred of Israel and building in this message. So they, you know, this is, these are all disincentives to the security forces. To, to do their job, the continuation of the uh, security cooperation, um, you know, is really put into question then. And he, uh, he well, one second, on security cooperation, the, the head of the PA actually suggested that there would be no cooperation at some point, right? Right. Yeah. But he, it, look, this protects him as much as it does Israel. So it's it's a bit of you know it's a bit of a sham, but we're 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 seeing you know over and over again in every respect. We, there were reports this week that Iran is increasing the monthly supplement they give to the Hamas. They have no money, right? The, the, the proof in one second, but they're increasing it to thirty million dollars a month. It's now about six million dollars a month. Same time, Hezbollah is screaming that they're not getting the money they need and to pay for all their activities, not just against Israel, although they are stepping up their activities in north, fortifying the villages in, in, in southern Lebanon, expanding their activities near the Golan. But Iran wants the third front, this meaning the Lebanon, Syria, and then Gaza, the third front against Israel, uh, to be active and to provide them with information on Israel's own missile capacity and uh, the flights, the um, intelligence about it, and they say that they will get the $30 million a month for that. Um, uh, it's, you know, every front that you look at where you see how the money is being diverted from the people, 30,000 people left this year so far from, from Gaza, and there's a cap of 300 a month that Egypt lets leave, but they're leaving. 
and they and many of them, many of the doctors, lawyers, the professionals don't come back because of it. And Iran has the same attitude towards its people. Mm-hmm. You know that they they changed the name of their currency from the real to the toman, and they cut off four zeros. Right. He told us this last week. It's amazing. Four zeros. <laughs> now, where this week? How many stories did you see? And you want to hear an amazing statistic? The birth rate in Iran is dropping precipitously. About 100,000 less births a year over years. This year it's already down 13%. The average family is 3.2 people. In 1980 it was 5.1 people. And the percentage of people under 15, for instance, is down about 15% from 10 years ago, 12 years ago. It's amazing, and, and yet none of this bothers the leadership. I'm sure that internally they, they talk about it because they're not going to have young people and people, period. But the, you know, it's also a statement of lack of confidence in the governments. It's a statement, and, and the world focuses and criticizes constantly Israel, which is supporting and trying to help and that wants to build hospitals and provide medical care and do all these other things for them. And yet you see the the, uh, the lack of regard for their own people from these dictators. So they have no other interest but to spend their money on on terror and military. That's basically it. They'll they'll keep investing in that no matter how many uh, how many impoverished people they have in their country. They are, for instance, Iran today. When you have widespread economic dislocation, the the through the sanctions, which are really working and doing a great job. And Zarif, you know, keeps mocking the foreign minister who's come under personal sanctions, mocking it and saying he doesn't own anything in America, but he's squealing like, you know, it's not big now everywhere. And so are other officials about Zarif being um, uh, sanctioned. Uh, if he didn't care, so why, why is he making such a big deal? And it's even one of the preconditions for negotiations, which they claim America wants. Um, and we have seen some changes that we should talk about in terms of the UAE and others signing deals with the um, with the Coast Guard of, of Iran, uh, security deals and, and other reports of talks that are, are, are underway or proposed. And the Iranians keep saying the Americans want them to talk, and Zarif was told he would, if he didn't come to Washington for meetings, then he would get sanctioned. I don't know if, if it's true, but it's something that... that, is, that um, is that unprecedented by the UAE? That is, this is unprecedented, and, and and unfortunately it may reflect a split with Saudi. Because I, I, I and I still, you know, every week I think you pick it up in my voice, I'm so confused with the whole Russia situation, but now I saw that they are starting joint naval exercises with Iran. They will do it at the end, before the end of the year, and it's to counter the British-U.S., but it's also a chance yeah, but... for them to show the flag in a very cheap way to, to, to project their presence, their power in the Mediterranean, in the Middle East. Um, but what did they, they have in the Mediterranean with their activities in, in, in Syria with minimal investment, and now they take advantage of the situation and are talking about doing these joint naval exercises uh, with Iran. And they have plenty of problems with Iran, but as long well, as against the U.S. Not... and against the, and it asserts their uh, their image, they but, continue to do it. But and why the, would I think? And and I, I, I why would I think, or the average guy think? that it would be in Russia's interest to team up with the U.K. and the U.S. to control the Mediterranean against Iran. I, I just, why do I think that? It's the Persian Gulf but, and against uh, Iran. And, I mean the and, Persian Gulf. And, yes, you would logically 
say that it, they have had long time problems with the, with Iran and their. The, you know, they, the first UN Security Council resolution passed when the UN was created in '45 was against Russia's occupation of Iran following World War II. The Britons and the Russians had occupied uh, half each half of uh, Iran, and, and the Brits pulled out, and <laughs> the Iranians decided that they were just gonna they were gonna stay. Um, so you would think that that it would be in their interest, but right, right now they will do anything that. Is a counter to the U.S. and counter U.S. interests, and they think the U.S. is being provocative in some instances. And then the the um, uh, this need to show the flag and to show that they're still a global power, even though their economy is in ruins, Russia's as well, and that the you know that it has an economy the size of Italy, um, and if oil you know doesn't go up to $100 a barrel again. They they will continue to suffer because they were the major exporters of oil in the world. In light of the uh, in light of the terror attack this week, uh, what do you say to those who who often try to tie the timing of terror attacks with Israeli elections? There's never a time when they're not trying to carry out terror attacks. If you knew how many there are prevented, had how successful Israeli. Intelligence. You know, if there's a failure in intelligence or something they didn't catch or didn't have a way to know, but the the fact is that it's it's miraculous how many they they have are able to prevent that it's ongoing, regardless of whether there are elections or no elections. Maybe it's an additional incentive if they're trying to influence the outcome, but the, the they're they are trying the attacks all the time. The U.N. has condemned Israel's building approvals. Israel's Civil Administration Subcommittee gave preliminary approval for over 1,400 homes and final approval for another 838 homes uh, in the uh, Jerusalem area, Judea and Samaria area, on, uh, on Monday and Tuesday of this week. I assume even with the condemnation, that building is going to continue. Yeah, but they don't write that they gave him the 800 units to the Palestinians to, to build and that the, all of the construction, illegal construction that's going on by the Palestinians of thousands of units and the, um, that, that construction, yes, I believe will go ahead. It's America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program heard on listener-sponsored digital radio. Around the world on the web at NahumSiegel.com and the NahumSiegel Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. Reminder, this coming Sunday is Tisha B'Av. Our program starts at 9.15 after JM Sunday. Matis is on between 7 and 9. At 9.15, five presentations of Kinnis live from the New Springville Jewish Center on Staten Island and two presentations with thoughts about Tisha B'Av. That'll wrap up at 2 o'clock. And then don't forget, at 7 p.m., You'll have an opportunity to close the fast between 7 and 9 with NCSY Colel as we broadcast their final uh, hours from uh, the Kotel uh, that will have taken place already toward the end of their Tisha B'Av in Yerushalayim. So, I mean, the election news, I guess the only uh, the only um, a noteworthy thing this week is that the prime minister is guaranteeing no unity government, which, of course, could change the moment the polls close, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That uh, <laughs> there are still switches in a lot of recriminations, but it'll only intensify as we get closer to the election. Uh, right now, I think this week the focus will be on American politics because 41 Democratic members of the House, freshman members, are coming 
to Israel led by Steny Hoyer, the majority leader, and then going to be followed immediately thereafter by almost an equal group of Republican freshmen led by um, McCarthy, the minority leader. And um, so I think that, and then it's going to be followed by uh, Omar and Tlaib coming to visit Palestine, not Israel. And I'm um, sure that the media is going to make a circus out of that. I would hope that they w- would ignore it and ha- let them talk about the things we just discussed, the, the real conditions on the ground and who's responsible for this. You know, you saw this story about, um, I think it was a, a JC group that was taken on a tour and it was publicized about, uh, you know, visiting in Hebron and talking about this area, which they said was abandoned and it was a business center. And it turned out that the business center moved about five minutes away oh, into these fancy new buildings and everything, and yet they they propagandized and everybody was was you know so upset about what they saw as as you know Israel, and then nothing was not because of Israel, and they had this modern new center built where they have the, the businesses and Hebron is actually an area with I think seventeen thousand Arab businesses and, and manufacturing places. I mean, the distortions and misrepresentations just defy description and, and imagination. And you can either blow the top of your head off or you just keep fighting and trying to get the message out. Who takes the 41 freshman Democratic Congress members around Israel? Uh, they do. And this is an annual uh, ritual now for the for freshman classes. Uh, the numbers, you know, vary every year. But it's, it's done in conjunction with the uh, APAC Educational Fund. And, um, you know, it's a great opportunity because many of these people, many members of Congress, and people don't know, have never, don't even have passports before they got elected. They've yeah. never traveled abroad. So for many of them, this is a chance to see the truth. And I think that's Israel, always Israel's uh, strongest weapon. And at a time when they will be facing more and more issues, which hopefully they'll get briefed about, the resurgence of ISIS in Iraq and Syria at least 18,000 active fighters, the assassinations and, and suicide bombings that are escalating by them and, the, and, and targeting U.S. forces who are trying to counter them in, in both countries and facing the challenge uh, of them, uh, 1,200 going back to Europe, hundreds have gone to Southeast Asia, and now in Africa we see um, a big expansion of, uh, of ISIS, that we see Iran's uh, role and, and further investments, both with Hamas and expanding the, the, um, uh, the, and the tensions escalating, even against Russian bases carried out by forces in Syria. And then they go on a military exercise which has killed hundreds and uh, 10,000 or more made homeless uh, as a result of it. But again, something people rarely hear, and the heating up with Turkey on the border with the US, agreement with the U.S. to create that safe zone, which may have forestalled uh, a full in, uh, invasion and occupation by uh, Turkey of a very large uh, part and going after the PKK, the Kurds, um, which they're still very devoted to doing. So the congressmen have to come there and see the, the true reality of, of what is happening on the ground with, the, with what Israel faces on the three borders that I, I mentioned uh, earlier uh, from Iran and from the uh, other forces and why Israel's role, and it's come out that Israel is helping the U.S.-British task force in the Gulf. And while they don't patrol, 
um, their intelligence and they say other areas, according to the foreign minister, uh, other areas in which they have been uh, of, of assistance to them. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm literally, as you are saying this, I'm reading the article about the opposition, about those who are trying to dissuade these freshmen members of Congress from going. Uh, I, I would assume, based on the numbers, that that was not a successful effort, right? right. And well, also, you know, in the uh, uh, you know, and, and and of course, there are objections that APEC sponsors it. But I also see that they are they are meeting with Abbas. It's not like they're not. You know, of course, they no, give him a full picture. Yeah, they don't, there's nothing to hide. Let him go in and see Abbas. Ask him why he's paying for the murder of all these people, and and his associations. But um, the, the 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 trips are, are are meant to be an opportunity to see the reality on the ground. It would not have credibility if they didn't, you know, offer them the opportunity to to see it, to see all signs, and to see the what's really happening. Yeah, I got that. Um, I, I know this is a domestic issue, but I just have to reiterate, uh, after what we saw this past weekend, it, it would be completely irresponsible. I know you always make this point, but it's never made enough. Uh, it would be completely irresponsible for synagogue leaders not to be thinking very seriously right now about the high holidays and about uh, uh, you know and, and the entire month of holidays that are upcoming because uh, we, we see what's going on now. And, uh, and if one's synagogue is not prepared... Uh, with with the phones and you know with, with the working phones near the rabbi and all the other you know different precautions that need to be taken, then it's it's completely irresponsible of uh, both rabbinic and synagogue leadership. And I'm sure that was one of the first things you thought of when you heard about what happened this past weekend here. Uh, uh, of course, and we we want to see much more done. This is the time to do it before school start before, uh, you know, the people come back and, and then everybody gets diverted into other things, that the, um, you know, we saw the statistics from Britain where there was, you know, a record, uh, again, 892 attacks against Jews and uh, a 10% increase in the first half of this year. And, and this is not, you know, verbal. This is talking about uh, physical assaults and, and objects thrown and uh, other things. And, and this is only those the numbers that are reported and recorded. So we have numbers in the United States that echo that kind of increase. And we've already seen uh, some uh, university problems emerging. People have to learn to report. People have to press the police to, to identify this hate crimes. People have to take the, the basic preventative steps, as you said, with a phone, with training people, with uh, making sure the doors, escape doors are open and working, which is, frankly, and people might think it's fundamental, but it's not the case. And it wasn't the case in the Pittsburgh synagogue, but they did an exercise a couple weeks before, and because of that, they were able to lead a lot of the people out through that exit down into the basement and out. Uh, That door had not been working before. So... There's a lot of steps people can take and, and measures that they should take, especially about entry and about uh, we don't want to restrict our institutions. We don't want our shuls to be hard to get into and unwelcoming. But at the same time, we have to use common sense. And if they want, they can call SCAN and the Secure Community Network, org and get information, and, and there's a lot of stuff online for them as well. If you wonder if our listeners are paying attention, someone points out that, in fact, the Iran crisis resolution was the second 
resolution in the history of the United Nations <laughs> that apparently it was the first resolution that actually was voted on that the first resolution before that was to establish a military staff committee, but that had no vote. So when you said it was the first, you meant the first that actually came to a vote in the U.N. Nitpickers. <laughs> you can say that again. I don't <laughs> well, know. it was still the first vote. <laughs> exactly. It's according to U.N. records, it's the first vote. I think that's hilarious. Uh, Jonathan Pollard, we know how the president uh, has been regarding Israel issues. We know how he's been with the embassy. We know how he's been with, with statements that go on, et cetera, et cetera. Is it more likely now, especially with Pollard pleading uh, for, the, um, uh, for his parole to be lifted, is it possible the president will act? I would certainly hope so. He's talking about uh, Governor Bonoyevich or and others getting pardons or oh, that's considering right. pardons. Yeah. Now that uh, and Jonathan has made his personal plea and, and many uh, pleas on his behalf, which so far have not been heard, it's ridiculous that he is living on, with such restrictions and with the illness of his wife, right. um, and that she has, she has cancer and that it may be advanced, that uh, he has let him live his life and their lives together. Uh, he, he can't go with her for treatments and, and all the fundamental things in life that they should do. And the fact that he can't finally go to Israel and live a quiet life, you see that he's not grandstanding. He's not looking to, to make himself a martyr. He has lived up to the conditions that have been talked about till now. Um, I hope that they will, that the president will, will grant him it. Amen to that. Um, the reason that Iran does not want to share its oil data, I assume, is because they don't want the U.S. to see just how strongly their sanctions are working. Would that be the right assumption? Yeah, well, we, we believe that this, the exports are down to 100,000 barrels a day. They, they will admit it. Um, there's also a, you know, a lot of smuggling going on, but they, they, they seized a, a, a tanker, which they claim was smuggling oil from them, uh, over the last few days, but the the uh, fact is that the the refineries, et cetera, are not working, and 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 the um, sanctions have impacted it. There there are twelve tankers sitting in a port in China, uh, and they don't want to pass some customs because then the sanctions apply as long as they're not taken as uh, into possession, of full possession, then it doesn't apply. But we see that the, the that the, all the promises of the Brits, et cetera, that they were going to, you know, make it up and that they were going to establish an alternative to the SWIFT banking system, et cetera, et cetera. None of it is really coming to to much. And and you see Britain recognizing the threat of Iran by the joint patrol by the after the seizure of of their tanker, and uh, all these issues still remain uh, unresolved. So it's it's. Um, and the, 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 their failure to be transparent is not surprising at all. Yeah, that's for sure. All right, Malcolm, everybody wants to know about the changes in the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. What do you know about incoming CEO William Daroff? I haven't heard about this. So, uh, <laughs> no. so um, as you know, a year ago, I asked that a, a transition process be put in place. I'm not leaving the conference. I'm going to be there. I'll remain the executive vice chairman, but I'm not going to be the CEO. I want to be able to do other things, and the day-to-day um, responsibilities prevented. And one of the big focus, as you know, I, uh, we recently did a big conference, and they're planning both an international and national movements to, to fight anti-Semitism. So uh, William Daroff, who has worked in Washington for the last 
uh, decade or more for the Jewish Federation of North America as their Washington representative will come in next year in 2020 um, and take over the, the CEO responsibilities, and I will be there as well as be doing some other things. Uh, but I'll still remain here with you every Friday morning and uh, as active as ever, but I want to use my energies in, a, in more directed in, in what I think are priority ro- roles. And I will, as I said, be taking on some new responsibilities that I've gotten some really nice offers, and um, though I have to choose and define it as I remain uh, at the conference uh, for a good part of the time. Well, I knew we were safe. You know, there was a panic among some listeners a year ago when you made your announcement, but I knew we were safe as soon as I read that you'll be remaining for special projects. And I said, oh, what could be more of a special project than us right here every Friday? <laughs> well, you're one of the special projects. That, uh, I, 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 I use that language because I want to give uh, William uh, every chance to succeed, and he will, I, I have no doubt. Um, I think the role of conference is as important as ever, and that uh, it'll take him a year or two to, to really get into the, he, although he knows the conference from having been involved, but to learn all the intricacies, all the things we do every day. That, and the fact is that 90% of what we do, 95% is not publicized and not public. Um, we didn't do enough of that, I guess. But, the um, uh, you know, it's coming in at a good time for for uh, transition. And I, and I really try to just to be responsible and, and to see to it that there will be an orderly transition, which I could play a role. I've seen too many organizations where such circumstances, especially after I've been there for 34 years, that, um, you know, there, there are sharp breaks or, or unsuccessful transitions, and we want to make sure it's successful. Uh, well, we've had him on the air at, at different times, and we are extremely impressed with the, uh, with the choice, frankly. Uh, I didn't realize that the, uh, you know, the conference was going in a certain direction, Whatever that means, and uh, we're very, I was really, really happy with the choice. I think he's a really nice guy and uh, somebody who's uh, um, very dedicated to Jewish leadership and the Jewish community in general. So he's got my endorsement. I'm sure that makes you uh, sleep better at night. No doubt about that. Your hechsher carries a lot of weight. There you go. Come on, I had a feeling you'd react. <laughs> I'm surprised that they way. didn't consult you. You know. And by the way, I'm shocked that you know you had a whole search. And never once was I called. But all right. <laughs> Uh, so now we stand at Erev Tishabov, and I'm telling you, there's something I know that you know this is, for obvious reasons, uh, you know the most depressing uh, day upcoming of the year. I get the whole thing, but there is something when I read the statistics about the number of people around the world who are traveling to Israel. When I am planning now, as you know, for the seventh time, to make fake Aliyah and join hundreds of people who are going with Nefesh Benefesh is coming Tuesday. Uh, Malcolm, I think I know, and I know the requirements. Believe me, I know. I'm very familiar with the requirements for this coming Sunday that we must do. But it, but we also have to acknowledge this is a different era. And 100 years ago and 200 years ago and 1,000 years ago, conditions were much different for the Jewish community overall. And I was hoping that you, in these final moments, with your message about the upcoming Tisha B'Av, uh, would be able to expand on that and tell us how lucky we are to be living through the times that we're in. Well, I try to convey that message every week, even though we talk about the challenges and the, and the negatives, to think that that we have the ability to go to the Kotel, to, the, to, to stand at Tarabayat, to, to be able to 
um, and, and have the freedom and all of the discoveries, even in the last few weeks, of related to Yerushalayim, related to the history of the Jewish people from finding Gath, where uh, Goliath came from, and the place where, where we believe that they fought, but the, also the, the towers every day, every day as the excavation system, as the season sort of comes to an end, the archaeological seasons, and they, the, the revelations are so unbelievable at a time when the world is still trying to take Yerushalayim away. If you take it for granted, if you think that just because we have access to it, you don't go there and say to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, thank you for this, that what our grandparents and their grandparents and their grandparents for 2,000 years didn't have, and that we take for granted, and he constantly is sending us messages that every time that shovel goes underground, that your David, the tunnels, the, every place throughout Israel, and so many amazing things are, are being uncovered, and it's too much to even document. I think there are 20,000 objects found every year. Wow. In these archaeological digs, and every one of them consistent with Tanakh. And, and we should think about how many opportunities to rebuild the Beis Hamikdash were lost because that Sinachinam continues, because of the internal divisiveness, because of the infighting, because we're, when we're not united, we prevent the rebuilding of the Beis Hamikdash. And this, that people not take it for granted. I begged the people, I spoke to the leading Rosh Hashiva about this, you know, why that we don't teach in yeshivas about these amazing discoveries that if they, if people, if you want the kids to believe and to, to see it, you can't argue with a rock, you can't argue with a becca, the, the, the weight that they found which says becca on it, which was used to, to the way they have shekel. The, the other discoveries, now that you can walk on the road all the way from Meshiloach, as the people did when they were Ola Regal 2,000 years ago and more, the discoveries going back even, even longer, as I said, to, to the time of David and Malach, and, and a lot of things that people used to paint as mythology, all of a sudden we see more and more evidence coming up which demonstrates that there was a kingdom of David and that, uh, that all of the stories that uh, you know, sometimes people would say, well, we don't have archaeological proof of it, all of a sudden we do, and it doesn't create the kind of excitement and appreciation in that Tisha B'Av should be a day of mourning. We mourn the losses, but we should also take show HaKar Satov and say, how do we make sure that next year when we come together, we will know that we have helped rebuild it and that we have reached out, that we make sure that Harazetim is, is secure, that people help the efforts which are coming here from America, from the International Committee, to make sure that all of the, the places that are so critical, because Mashiach is supposed to come through Harazetim, and I really believe in the Man of Olives, that he would have come there and seen the conditions and said, this is how you took care of it, and turn around. Wow. But now, I think because of those efforts, and hopefully people will continue to support that and many other things, to bring home the message and teach the kids about it. Take the time to teach the kids, because you won't have to worry about their belief in their muna if, if you show them the concrete proof. And I want to add that if, uh, if in fact, the, the ultimate uh, dream was to see Jerusalem become the center of the world, these numbers of people who are coming from everywhere on the globe to visit, to, you know, to be in Jerusalem and the rest of Israel for as long as possible and make it their business from all backgrounds and all religions. Make it their, did you read that article that uh, um, how, how everybody in the, uh, in the Arab countries, this woman who came from Syria, everybody, how she said every single person in the Arab countries would love to spend some time in Israel. From Saudi Arabia. 
from Saudi Arabia. Yeah. I apologize, Saudi Arabia. I mean, you know, we have to think about what what those who are who are not in who are not Jewish are saying about Jerusalem and are saying about Israel. We should have the same passion that they have. And look at the number of Christians or Jews who come to visit Israel. Yeah. And and uh, 150,000 Chinese, 100,000 Indians. I mean, the numbers are st- and the statistics are amazing. But but you know the the some of the numbers still about the percentage who have visited from America, et cetera. Um, birthright has helped it, but it, it has to be a sustained educational and ongoing effort and connection. And hopefully that we will see that this year. Wish you an easy fast. We'll speak, please God, next week. Be well. Malcolm Honline, Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Friday morning, Erev Shabbos Parshas Devarim, Erev Shabbos Chazon. Candle lighting 742 in New York. This time each and every Friday, every Erev Shabbos, with great pleasure we present Rabbi Benjamin Yudin, spiritual leader of Congregation Shomrei Torah in Fairlawn, New Jersey, to address the entire listening audience concerning the Torah portion of the week. Good morning, Rabbi Yudin. Good morning, Nachum. Good Erev Shabbos, everybody. Tomorrow we have the privilege of reading Parshas Devarim. We start the fifth book of the Torah. According to the Chinuch, Devarim contains two mitzvos, both restrictions related to judges in Israel. The Shabbos has the designation of taking its name from the Haftorah, Chazon Yeshayo, the beginning of the book of Yeshayo that we read as the Haftorah, and um, it is the Shabbos before Tisha B'Av, and this year because Tisha B'Av is tomorrow on Shabbos, and we fast on Sunday. There's really a very interesting machlokes between the Mechaber. Rav Yosef Karo and Ramah, the Rav Moshe Israelis, as to how to look upon tomorrow, this Shabbos. Rav Salvechik Sachron Levracha explained it in the following way. When the rabbis instituted Tisha B'Av, and according to the calendar, Tisha B'Av can fall on a Tuesday, Thursday, or Shabbos, when Tisha B'Av is on a Shabbos, do we say that it's certainly on the calendar is the ninth of Av, but do we say that all of the laws of the ninth of Av are pushed off to the tenth of Av, and therefore none whatsoever on this Shabbos, in which case... Devarim Shebetzinah, literally, marital relations, would be permissible. And that is the opinion of the Machaber for Sfardim. However, Ashkenazim follow the opinion of the Ramah that says, tomorrow this Shabbos is Tisha B'Av. And it has the tone and behavior of Tisha B'Av in the sense that Tvarim Shebetzinah are uh, applicable and therefore a married couple are not to engage in marital relations tonight because it is the technically the night of Tisha B'Av. It's Tisha B'Av tomorrow but we don't fast. Now interesting, not only don't we not fast tomorrow but 
There is no su'udah hamavsekes. There is no meal before the fast. And more important, if one wanted to, at his shalosh su'udos, at his shalashudas tomorrow, they could have meat and they could drink wine. There is no halacha that one has to eat that hard-boiled egg, sitting low, etc. If you like a hard-boiled egg, and you like it for shalashudas, and you eat it every week, go right ahead and have it tomorrow. So, just be aware that this is interesting, the nature or how to look upon this Shabbos. I'd like to first review some of the laws of Tisha B'Av, and then a little bit of a machshava as to how to uh, look upon this day. So the five Inuyim restrictions of Tish, of Yom Kippurim apply to Tisha B'Av. So therefore eating and drinking, which is one, and washing of the body, which is bathing, number two, sicha, anointing uh, the body, cosmetics, number three, marital relations, number four, and leather shoes, number five, apply to Tisha B'Av. And tomorrow night, Motsoi Shabbos, is one of the two nights during the year that the mikvah is closed. On this Motsoi Shabbos Sunday, rinsing one's mouth using wash, uh, mouthwash is not permitted. And interestingly, regarding uh, pregnant and women, so the Be'er Halacha quotes Rabbi Kiva Eger, who says that pregnant and nursing women don't have to fast this year because Tisha B'Av is pushed off a nidcha to uh, Sunday. Rabbi Yosef rules for Svardim the same way. However, Ashkenazic practice is that a pregnant or nursing mother should fast, but very, very important, no heroics. Namely, as soon as they feel discomfort, they should break their fast. A woman who gave birth during the past 30 days is not obligated to fast. And if she does, she could and should stop fasting whenever she feels any weakness. <coughs> One should not wash <coughs> or immerse in water any part of the body with the following exceptions. When you wake up in the morning, wash your hands, negovasa, right, left, right, left, right, left, and we wash until the knuckles. You uh, rinse the water off your fingers with your fingers moist, put them through your eyes, clean them out, and that's it. Or at any time during the day, one could wash their hands if they get dirty, so you're not washing for pleasure, you're washing to remove the dirt, as well as we wash before dominating. We wash after we use the bathroom. And if a person, uh, a mommy, preparing food for her children on Tisha B'Av, she can wash the food, etc., even if her pecans are going to become wet in the process. 
you should not wash dishes on Tisha B'Av this Sunday, even if they were used on Shabbos and you didn't have the opportunity on Shabbos to wash them, so wait until after Tisha B'Av. Okay, now, one who must eat on Tisha B'Av and they wish to have bread, they certainly could, should wash their hands in the usual way before having bread. If a person perspires heavily, they can use deodorant on Tisha B'Av. All other beauty aids, cosmetics, may not be applied. Hair combing is permissible. Sunbathing on Tisha B'Av is prohibited. Leather shoes, shoes covered with leather, may not be worn. Now, children under boys under 13, girls under 12, who alpidin are not obligated to fast. Now, whereas when it comes to Yom Kippur, we train our children a year or two beforehand. Why? Because, please God, they will be fasting Yom Kippur all their life. There's no chinuch for Tisha B'Av. Because we pray that if we are going to fast this year, it's going to be the last one. When it comes to sleeping, please God, tomorrow evening, <coughs> on the night of Tisha B'Av, one should not sleep in the usual way, but should try to do so in a less comfortable way. If you usually use two pillows, then try with one, etc. And until midday on Tisha B'Av, one should sit low on the ground or on a stool less than 12 inches high. Now let's talk for a second and let's try to understand why it is that at Chatzos, which is 1 o'clock this uh, Sunday, why things change. So there is a very interesting uh, Tehillim whereby the Tehillim says... Mizmar la'asaf. Dovra Melech literally uh, proclaims a song for Asaf. And what does he continue in this song? And what does he say? This is Tilim Ayin Tes 79. Elokim Hashem. Bo'ugoyim secha. The nations have entered into your inheritance. Simu. Es Yerush Timu Es Heichal Kodshecha. They have defiled your sanctuary. Samo Es Yerushalayim Le'iyim. And they have turned Yerushalayim into heaps of rubble. Amazing. This begins with the word Mizmor, a psalm. It should have begun with the word Kina, lamentation. And the rabbis give a very powerful answer. <clears throat> the answer is that instead of taking out his, Hashem's anger on the people in the afternoon, that is when the Beis Migdosh was put on fire. So his anger was directed towards a building and not towards the people. We're able to see even in 
our suffering, we're able to see that silver lining, and therefore, at Chatzos, you get up. And, <clears throat> interestingly, the rabbis teach us, based upon the familiar pasuk that we're going to recite in our Shachris tomorrow morning, Bikude Hashem Yesharim Misam The teachings of Hashem are just, and they literally gladden the heart. There is joy in studying Torah. And forgive me if you don't always feel that joy. The Tisha B'Av is to remind us that something is missing. So, our learning of Torah on Tisha B'Av is to be specifically geared to those parts of the suffering of our nation, such as the book of Eicha, such as the book of Eov, Job, the parts of the Navi, Jeremiah, right, Yirmiyahu, whereby he speaks of the uh, unfortunate uh, tragedies that are going to occur to the Jewish people. The third chapter of the Gemara Moed Katan and the fifth chapter, parts of the fifth chapter of the Gemara Gitin. Okay, um, again, in the Gemara Gitin, it is page Nun Vav, 56a through 58a, and the account of the destruction of the Beis Hamikdash in the Gemara Sanhedrin, Kuftalid, Amid Aleph, and Amid Beis. 104a and 104b. And even these Gemaras and permissible parts to study should be studied without an in-depth going through it, which that too could give us, quote-unquote, that joy. One should not learn with children, but tell them stories of the Churban, Tell them, unfortunately, what we're missing. Writing should not be done on Tisha B'Av until Chatzos. Housework should not be done on Tisha B'Av. After Chatzos, you can make the beds. Business should certainly not be conducted from tomorrow night until Chatzos because we don't want a hesachadas. We don't want a person to be deflected and take his mind away from what Tishabov is supposed to be. And if there is a hefseid maruba, if there is a significant, extensive financial loss, then discuss it with your rabbi that the business could be done after chatzos on Sunday. We don't greet one another on Tisha B'Av. And if someone does extend greeting, we respond in a solemn way. Tomorrow night, <laughs> a simple thing by not saying good night on the night of Tisha B'Av makes a Roshem. Exchanging gifts on Tisha B'Av is prohibited. And even a walking in a public area, okay, should not be done uh, on uh, Tisha B'Av 
in the afternoon, okay? And before chatzos, when a, uh, one should not prepare the meal for what's going to be eaten after the fast until after chatzos. When there is a bris on Tish Ab'av, so it's done after kinos, the moyol, the sandik, the father, mother, they will change into Shabbos clothes after kinos. They still can't wear leather shoes. And after the bris, they take off their Shabbos clothes. And the meal for the bris is eaten at night. Now, <coughs> in the shul, tomorrow night, the paroches covering the oron is either removed or pushed to the side. After Shmona Esrei of Mayriv tomorrow night, Tzkabil is recited during Kaddish, but after Eicha until Mincha on Sunday afternoon, Tzkabil is omitted when Kaddish is recited. After Eicha, the prayer of Uvalet Sion is recited, beginning with the Atokadosh. Now, this year, <coughs> because Tisha B'Av is observed on Sunday, Vihinoam and V'yiten are omitted from the Mayriv tomorrow night. Kriyashma and Kriyashma Shalmita are recited tomorrow night. On the morning of Tisha B'av, Sunday morning, Talis and Tefillin are not worn, right? During Shachris, they are put on for Mincha. Interestingly, there's the demarcation. We treat Tisha B'av morning as if it had the status of Avelis Yom Rishon, the first day, the most intense time of the morning when an Avel, Loalinu, does not put on their um, tefillin. And we do not kiss the, um, the talus katan is put on in the morning with the bracha, but we do not kiss the tzitzis during Kriyashma, during Shachris. All the korbanos that are usually said daily and Mizmor Lesoda are recited. The following tefillos are omitted on Tisha B'Av. We don't say Tachanun, we don't say Ovinu Malkeinu, we don't say Kel Erech before the Torah is removed, we don't say the Hiratzon. After the reading of the Torah, we don't say Lamnat Seach between Ashrei and Evolutzion. We don't say Pitumak Tores and Enkelokeinu and the Ashkenaz, the Sephardim, excuse me, and Banizos Brisi in the Evolutzion. And in the Shmona Esrei, the Chazan, in the repetition of Shmona Esrei, does not say at Shacharis Birkas uh, Koanim. Okay, it is recited at Mincha. Tehillim, 
should not be recited on Tisha B'Av, even for a sick person. The Kriya Satora this Sunday morning of Kisolid Bonim Ufnei Bonim and the Haftorah of Asof Asifim is the designated Kriya Satorah for um, Tishabav. No Mishaberach is said accompanying the reading of the Torah unless it is for a sick person. After the Kinos, after the Torah reading, the Torah is returned to the Ark, the recitation of Kinos commences. Now, listen carefully. We really should appreciate the fact that today Art Scroll and others have really enhanced the recitation of Kinos, which is very challenging, written in a flowery Hebrew, and now it opens up the door for our understanding of the various Kinos, which talk about the loss of the Beis Amigdash and the other sorrows, tragedies that occurred to the Jewish people, the uh, decimation of the Jewish communities in, uh, in Germany, in Mainz, and other cities in Germany, the Crusades, uh, the burning of the Torah uh, in, in France, um, and leading up Lowellinu to the Holocaust. All this is now much more available, understandable, and so ideally one should stay in the Beisach Knesses, or if necessary at home, and recite Kinos sitting low until Chatzos, which is 1 o'clock. In the afternoon, if you can, it's appropriate to visit a Jewish cemetery and even, they say, if not a Jewish cemetery, just to go in a little bit to a non-Jewish cemetery to remind us of, unfortunately, the many, many sorrows. The Talis and Tefillin are worn at uh, Mincha time, okay? It's preferable for those who put on Tefillin Rabbeinu Tam not to put them on on Tisha B'Av. The Shir Shalyom is recited at um, at Mincha time. In the Shemona Esri at Mincha, Tfilas Nachamu is added in the bracha of Bonei Yerushalayim and the Tfila of Anenu in Shmakolenu is once again added. Okay, and if one should recite the Tfila of Nachem before Uvnei Yerushalayim in the Birkas Hamazon, if one is eating on Tisha B'Av. Now, interestingly, if one has to eat on Tisha B'Av, they should recite Havdalah. Let's start talking about that. And that is as follows. This Mutsoi Shabbos, number one, we don't make Havdalah at home, period. In Shul, we recite before Kinos the bracha of Borei Mi'orei Ho'esh. Havdolah is recited at home after uh, t- 
Tisha B'Av Sunday night, a cup of wine slash grape juice, and uh, mix them, and you have the concluding bracha of Hamavdil. No spices, this Motsoi Shabbos at all, and only the Borei Maorei Oesh, either at home or in the Beis HaKnesses on Motsoi Shabbos. Now, this year, <coughs> when you have uh, Tishabov on a uh, Motsoi Shabbos, so one is not to bring their shoes on Shabbos to shul. That's an absolute no-no. That would be preparing on Shabbos for after Shabbos, which you're not permitted to do. Bring your non-leather shoes to the Beis HaKnesses tomorrow afternoon for Mincha, or get them there on Friday so that they'll be in shul for Shabbos. Now, the our shoes are removed Motsoi Shabbos after Baruchu is said. The Chazin takes it off right before Bahu Rachum, okay, at first saying to himself, Baracham Abdul Bein Kodesh Lachol. Okay, now. As I mentioned before, remember there is no Su'uda Ha-Mavsekes this year, and if one wanted to, one could have even meat and um, wine. Now finally, other years when Tisha B'Av is on a Tuesday or a Thursday, there are some residual laws that apply until midday of the next day. That does not apply this year except for the restriction that one is not to have meat or wine this coming Sunday night. That's it. But all other restrictions such as bathing, such as shaving are lifted immediately this coming Sunday night. Now, it's so hard for me to try to give you an an appropriate thought. I'm just going to tell you quickly that we are a people that live with contradictions. Tisha B'Av is called a moed. It's called a holiday. A holiday? What are you, crazy? So what's the answer? What is a moed? A moed is a time that we literally connect or meet with Hashem. And just as on Pesach, wow, we meet with Hashem in a most positive way, on Tisha B'Av, we meet with Hashem in the opposite. The kina of B'tseisimi Mitzrayim, and B'tseisi Mi shows these two extremes. These two extremes of when I left Egypt and when I left Jerusalem. Take a look in the Gemara Subos 66b. The Gemara has the following story that 
shortly after the destruction of the temple, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai met a woman who, forgive me, was going through the dung of the donkeys of the Arabs, and she was picking out the pieces of barley from the dung, which she was then going to boil and cook to have something to eat. Look at the look at the horrific situation, and when Rabbi Yochanan and Zakai asks her, "Who are you?" and she says, "My father was Naktimon Ben Gurion, one of the richest men in Yerushalayim," and we see Ayay where she is now, and what's his response? Unbelievable. You'll think it's a mistake in your Gemara. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai says, Ashrechem Yisrael. Unbelievable. Look how fortunate Israel is. Fortunate. Oy, oy, oy. And what's the answer? Explains Rabbi Friedlander, Zechazadik Levracha, so powerfully. There's no such thing as middle of the road for the Jewish people. When we're up, we are up. And when we're down, unfortunately, we are down. The very fact that our sorrows have been to such an extreme, that in of itself shows us that, God forbid, it should not be looked upon as if this was a chance, but rather Hashem is clearly involved in anything and everything that happens to our peoplehood. And therefore, the biggest nechama the biggest consolation for the Jewish people comes about by our actually observing Tisha B'Av, that we have what Rav Salvechi called the miracle of Jewish memory. Now, what does that mean? On the night of the Pesach Seder, we don't remember that the Jewish people ate matzah, we actually relive it by eating the matzah. Tomorrow night when we sit down and we say Belayel Zeh on this very night, so it's not simply saying that on this very night, come on, X number of thousands of years ago, we unfortunately lost our temple. No, we look at literally Belayel Zeh. Right, written by Rebbe Elozar HaKalir. On this night, it's as if it happened tonight. We are able to feel the pain and the suffering of our past, and that's why the rabbis promise us at the end of the Gemara Tanis that whoever truly mourns for the Beis Migdash will be privileged to once again celebrate it's coming. And so, as the Jewish people throughout the world sit down once again, unfortunately, and we pray that Adat, there's still time today for him to come, but should it happen, we really have to connect and realize that just as a child who was born and raised in a dark cave and never saw sunlight, to him this is the norm. We think that the life that we live in today is the norm. Ay ay ay. Tishabov tells us that you know, like me, you're afraid to turn on the radio in the morning. And this is in where we are, let alone that Eretz Yisrael is still beset and Jews Loalenu still all over the world. There's so much which is 
not just wrong, but so much which is horrific, so much that we are lacking, that we are, unfortunately, our senses are dulled by the life about us and the fact that we are driving a nice car and we remodeled our kitchen. What's wrong? Oh, my goodness. We need a Tisha B'Av to sit down and to put things in the right perspective. I wish everyone a Shabbat Shalom and a meaningful fast, which hopefully will be our last Tisha B'Av. J.M. and the A.M. Friday morning, Erev Shabbos. My thanks to Rabbi Yudin, and of course, uh, as we mentioned last week, Rabbi Yudin uh, just got up from Shiva a couple of days ago from uh, the passing of his sister, so our condolences, of course, to he, uh, to him and his entire extended family. Friday morning on this Erev Shabbos Parshas Dvarim, Erev Shabbos Chazon, candlelighting at 7.42. A reminder that Sunday we will be uh, at the New Springville Jewish Center. Join us for the Kinnis uh, and thoughts about Tisha B'Av in seven beautiful presentations, which will begin at 9.15 in the morning Eastern Time from the New Springville Jewish Center on Staten Island. Again, it starts at 9.15 in the morning Eastern Time. Uh, you can see the whole thing at NahumSiegel.com. You can uh, hear it on the NSN app. Uh, you can hear it, of course, on our listen line, so make sure to be tuned in on Sunday um, and have a meaningful Tisha B'Av. Uh, toward the end of the fast, you'll be inspired as we close our broadcast uh, between 7 and 9 p.m. with NCSY Kolel from the Kotel Amaravi, from the Western Wall. So uh, both uh, at the beginning and middle of the day and at the end of the day, you have an opportunity uh, to have a very inspiring Tisha B'Av. Also, don't forget, Mincha at the Isaiah Wall, Mincha at the Isaiah Wall across the street from the U.N., uh, First Avenue, 43rd Street. It all begins at 2 p.m. Make sure you bring your towels and tefillin and a sitter and get ready for a full mincha with Torah reading, etc. That is on Sunday on Tisha B'Av. And a reminder, as Rabbi Yudin said, get your Tisha B'Av shoes ready before Shabbos so you have them for tomorrow night. Time to say good Shabbos with Journeys at JM in the AM.
My brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio. Around the world on the web at NachumSegal.com and the NachumSegal Network. And, of course, on the beloved NSN app. And that will wrap up yet another amazing week here at JMM. Don't forget, Matis has JM Sunday, uh, Sunday between 7 and 9 on Tisha above morning. 9.15, our presentation for the new Springville Jewish Center on Staten Island. 7 p.m., NCSY, Kolel, all on the NSN app. And, of course, Monday morning we're back with Mordechai Shapiro live in the studio here at JM in the AM. Tuesday we travel to Israel. Wednesday's JM in the AM will be from the plane with Nefesh Benefesh. How amazing is that? Have a fabulous Shabbos, a, um, an easy weekend, and certainly an easy fast. And a meaningful Tisha B'Av. Till Monday, Nachum Siegel reminding you, remember the past, live the present, and trust the future.